Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, fellow colleagues and companions, and welcome to Device Nation. New listeners know that you can listen in confidence as this series is manufactured from only the highest quality raw materials. Calcium stearate-free, compression-molded, podcast-grade, 1900H resin. How many shows do you listen to that can boast of that? I dare say none. It's never a good idea to be particularly boastful about anything, but we do take special pride today in an opportunity to sit down and talk with the Chief of Combined Division of Hand and Microvascular Surgery at Duke University Medical Center back in Durham, North Carolina, Dr. David Roosh. Just an incredible conversation that you're going to want to hang around for. So speaking of hand, got to share a quick story with you. was taking a taxi ride back from the airport super late at night recently. Not exactly engaged mentally, but what I did notice was a couple things. When I got into this late 80s Hyundai Sonata, the driver literally looked trapped behind the wheel. More on that in just a second. As we drove and he talked and talked and talked and talked, I noticed that he used his hands a lot to talk which isn't odd. A lot of people talk with their hands. But the more I focused in on what he was doing, I realized he was using both hands. So then I was interested, who's driving the car? Not exactly self-driving technology in this particular vehicle. And it was then that I realized not only was he literally trapped behind the wheel, so to speak, he was using his stomach as another appendage to actually drive the vehicle and not just keep the wheel straight, mind you. He was doing minor corrections down the road with nothing but his belly to guide us. I couldn't decide between whether A, tell him to immediately put both hands on the wheel and drive as I am paying you handsomely for just that, or B, just sit there in awe watching this man who has clearly honed this craft over many a buffet and many a mile. I chose the latter. We got there safely. My first hands-free driving experience. Who needs Elon Musk? So clearly, you don't need hands to drive these days, nor do you need them to climb stairs. Yes, we are getting our steps in today as we continue our climb up the behavioral influence stairway model developed by friend of Device Nation, Dr. Greg Vecchi, former BSU chief of the FBI. We find ourselves on the first step, empathy, and we've been talking about the precursors to empathy, asking questions, and then we went a little salesy on the active listening aspect, opening up five Ps, two of which we went over last week. Purpose, why are you listening? And position, where do you see yourself as you listen? And this week, we're going to talk about points of connection. Why are we spending time on this? Because most people think selling is the same as talking, but the most effective salespeople know that listening is the most important part of the job. I didn't say that. Roy Bartell did. So let's dig into this and see if we can find some stuff that'll make us better. Points of connection. Just for a moment, I'd like to talk to you about my perfect dog, Daisy. She loves to watch TV with the family, especially shows that have fellow canines on them. Until that moment, a doorbell goes off in the show. Even though the doorbell rarely sounds anything like the doorbell in my house, she goes absolutely nuts, racing to the door, barking, can't shake her out of it. And there, the show that she wanted to watch, it just keeps going. And she doesn't care. She's convinced 
Somebody is behind that door and that possibly they may come in and scratch her on the head. After five minutes or so, I think she finally gets the clue that no one is coming through that door, and then she makes her way back to the sofa. What in the world does that have to do with active listening to our customers and our patients? Well, it goes something like this, at least for me. You're in a conversation, you're doing your best to actively listen, and then all of a sudden the doorbell rings. Well, what's the doorbell in this scenario? It is a point of connection, and now you're completely distracted. You're at the door barking, not listening to the TV show anymore, not even focused on anything. How does that work? Perfect example. I love Nissan GTRs. I'm very passionate about this vehicle. A friend of mine was talking to me the other day about a litany of subjects, and somehow Nissan GTR got thrown in there, and I fought hard to things. Number one, just daydreaming about the car, right? I started thinking Liberty Walk. I started thinking AlphaTech modifications. Nismo, I want a wrap for my vehicle that looks like X. I just go off into imagination land. It was a point of connection for me, right? Or number two, I'm just waiting for them to stop talking so that I can start talking about this very subject that I am very passionate about. It's a doorbell in the middle of a conversation. So here's two takeaways for your consideration. Not all points of connection uncovered in a conversation need to be addressed by you in that same conversation. I struggle with this. Your customer mentions a passion for Australian rules, football, and flounder gigging. You love both. Well, consider that possibly as an entree for the next conversation. This is a long-term proposition job. There is always... Number two, as Rex Quando so eloquently said in Napoleon Dynamite, you need to discipline your image. Well, you know what? We need to discipline our active listening. Don't daydream. Stay focused and continue listening even after that doorbell gets rung. Look, I am diagnosed ADD. I struggle with this. But it can be done. If I can do it, anybody can. Don't hang back at mile marker 20 in a conversation because you realize you both love Nickelback, only snapping out of it at mile marker 31. It doesn't seem like a lot, only 11 conversational miles. But you know what? We can miss a lot of great material that our customers are sharing with us because our mind is elsewhere. For no other reason than we heard something that we were excited about. Need to discipline our active listening. I had to practice this same discipline with our next guest. Dr. David Roosh is from Durham, North Carolina, which reminds me of Deepak, some of my favorite concerts there, which then starts to remind me of Dame's Chicken and Waffles, my favorite restaurant on the face of the earth. See how easy it is to get distracted? Well, you're not going to be distracted today after hearing his story and all the incredible things that are going on around him there in North Carolina. Let's give a great big Device Nation welcome to Dr. David Roosh. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Dr. Roosh, thank you so much for coming on Device Nation. Your footprint in the hand space is significant, and I look forward to asking you about your current role as Chief of Division at Duke for hand and microvascular surgery. But let's start in Tacoma Park, Maryland. What put you on the road to medicine? You know, uh, it seems uh, funny to say this, but there was no other pathway for me, really. Um, My grandfather was... um, 
uh, cardiologist, actually uh, part of the uh, Truman White House. And um, my grandmother was a nurse and my dad was a physician, is a physician. And uh, my mother was a PhD. And all of my parents' friends were in medicine, the way that a lot of times uh, doctors seem to congregate together, that's what uh, they did in in Maryland. And uh, so I didn't I didn't have any friends uh, that whose parents weren't doctors or lawyers. And uh, my godfather was uh, one of my dad's partners, and it just seemed natural to go into medicine. And then I was about probably about nine or ten, and I uh, started watching the show Mash. Oh yeah, and. Um, Boy, I wanted to be Hawkeye Pierce something bad. I really did. Uh, So I wanted to walk in and take control of the situation and save somebody's life and really feel like I had contributed. Uh, So that was uh, that was what I wanted to do forever. And um, when I got to Duke, uh, that's that's what I wanted to do. And uh, my roommate in college at the time, uh, he's a neurosurgeon um, in Charlotte and um, I remember one night, uh, he's in the bottom bunk, I'm in the top, and uh, he says to me, uh, Dave, what kind of doctor do you want to be? And um, I said, I don't know. I, I just want to get into medical school at this point, and I'm not sure what kind of doctor I want to be. I said, what, what kind of doctor do you think I should be? And he said, Dave, I think you'd be a great orthopedic surgeon. And I said, well, that's that's kind of you. What, what are you going to do? And he said, well, Dave, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> the hierarchy that was a, a part of our uh, our dorm life. Um, but uh, it's uh, true to the point. He went to uh, medical school and is a very well-known neurosurgeon. Uh, I went in pediatrics, um, and it was a good match for both of us. Uh, my favorite line by Hawkeye. And I don't know why I remember this stuff, but uh, an instrument has yet to be devised that can test my indifference to that remark. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he always make that uh, those gin martinis. Uh, oh with yeah, the, with the test tubes and the Erlenmeyer flasks uh, over a Bunsen burner. So they were great, great episodes. You know, I've talked to a lot of surgeons and got to see what they graduated with degrees in. And I've seen all kinds of things, but you were the first surgeon I've ever talked to that graduated with a degree in British literature uh, at Duke. What what pulled you into that? Well, I, I you know, I have to say that um, uh, I've always enjoyed uh, literature and uh, it's always been a, a strength of mine to remember um, lines from books and movies and so forth. So I found that that was a um, something I just gravitated towards. I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be to do the the pre med route um, until about my sophomore year, and then I started maybe regretting the decision as being a little bit premature. But uh, I stuck with it, and um, it came in handy because I, I wrote all of my wife's law school papers uh, <laughs> when she was So uh, that was it. It did come in handy at one point in my life. <laughs> Well, you go on to become chief resident at Wake Forest, uh, the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. Beautiful city. Baptist is an amazing medical center. Um, any memories of your experience there? There was a, a lot of opportunity to see patients and treat them independently and in a, in a very large uh, trauma population as well. It's a, at one point, you know, as a, as a familiar with uh, orthopedic devices as you are, you 
probably know the statistic, but uh, the femoral nail is uh, is used to treat femur fractures, and it's hard to break your femur. You really have to work hard at it. You have to get involved in a car accident or a motorcycle accident. And at one point, the uh, Wake Forest was the uh, second largest uh, uh, consumer of femoral nails uh, in the United States, wow. uh, uh, Tennessee. So um, we um, we did our share of trauma and. Uh, I really, that's again, kind of why I went into medicine is I really liked, uh, taking care of the, the, uh, badly injured patients. Uh, so, uh, it was a good time for me to be in medicine and it was a, a great experience. I got a lot of operative experience there. When did you decide that the hand, uh, that's what I want to focus on and, and build my career around that? Well, that was, uh, that was partly, you know, everything is, uh, in part because of your mentors. And I had a great mentor back then. His name was David Siegel. And um, I learned a lot um, about limb reconstruction from him. And uh, we did a, a lot of um, badly uh, mangled extremities at the time. And it involved, you know, taking the, the skeleton and, and repairing the skeleton. And then you could take muscle from uh, somewhere else in the body. And then if you had a microscope and the knowledge, you could put uh, the vessels together uh, down in the leg and you could get that muscle to grow and cover uh, the the bone that you had reconstructed. And and then you could come back and you could fix the nerves um, or graft the nerves. And then uh, you could do, uh, you know, some type of soft tissue coverage or uh, skin graft. And there's only one uh, discipline that kind of enabled you to do all of that. It's funny that I picked it because I, I picked it because I like to reconstruct people's limbs, including their lower limbs. And of course, now most of what I do is hand surgery and it's completely uh, far away from the lower extremity. But but at the time, it, it, it was the only subspecialty in orthopedics that allowed you to do all of those things uh, uh, at one time. So as a hand surgeon, you learn how to sew blood vessels together under a microscope. And uh, if somebody cuts something off, you're able to put it back on. Um, and you, you learn how to take uh, muscle from one place and put it in another place. And you learn how to graft nerves. And it's just a, an all-encompassing field. And that's that's sort of why I picked it. And um, I just I think it's still one of the best fields in orthopedics because we, we really focus on everything uh, in the upper extremity. Uh, we're not just all about putting in a total joint or fixing a broken bone, but we, we do, uh, we do it all, which is, uh, unusual in orthopedics. Well, I definitely have some upper extremity questions for you, but I did have to ask you this. I was reading an article about the, the diminishing presence of plastic surgeons in hand surgery and realized I've, I've heard these two things in tandem, uh, over the years of my career, where's the connection? As I believe you had a secondary appointment in plastic surgery as well. Yeah, I mean, we're a combined division. We have hand surgeons that are uh, uh, orthopedically trained, and we've got hand surgeons that are plastic surgery trained. And uh, the thing that brings us all together is that, that additional experience uh, in just uh, focusing on hand surgeons. The presence of uh, plastic surgery in or, uh, in hand surgery, I think it's actually growing uh, substantially over the last couple of years. I think prior to that, uh, about 80% of the uh, Society for Surgery of the Hand was um, orthopedically trained, about uh, 20% plastic surgery trained. And that number stayed pretty consistent for a good 10 or 15 years. But over the last couple of years, I've seen um, 
a huge increase in the number of uh, applicants uh, to our program for our fellowship, uh, our plastic surgeons. And uh, to be uh, totally honest, uh, their applications are incredibly strong. Um, So I I think that that it's starting to become uh, a really, uh, you know, real career for a plastic surgeon. Uh, we've got a couple of our plastic surgery residents right now going into hand surgery and are, are going to become um, uh, academic hand surgeons. So uh, I'm pleased to say that um, uh, the rumors of their demise is, uh, <laughs> is premature. And um, I do think that we're going to see a, a real resurgence of um, interest in the plastic surgery world here uh, moving forward. In fact, the current president of the uh, hand society or the past president of the hand society is uh, a plastic surgeon. So yeah, I think it's it's really it's a it's a wonderful uh, marriage uh, because the plastic surgeons are are generally uh, very very accomplished uh, microsurgeons, um, and they they are looking for a little bit more of an orthopedic uh, training. And uh, our orthopedic uh, residents are are really very versatile in uh, skeletal fixation, but then they're uh, they're very interested in uh, exploring microsurgery and and the um, and the feats that it can accomplish. So uh, it's a nice uh, combined discipline, really. You've been running the HAM program up at Duke for a while. What does your practice look like now, and what are you doing a lot of? What do you enjoy doing the most? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think that um, uh, somebody once told me that every time you add a partner, you give up a piece of your practice. Um, And I suppose that's kind of true. I've I've been, as I add people to the group, I I try to make uh, sure that they're happy and successful and I give them a, a portion of whatever I'm seeing or um, portion of my practice and try to make them successful at it. And uh, so far, all I've really done is box myself out of uh, most of my existing practice, I suppose. But right now, as you, the other thing you find in medicine is as you get a little bit older, you're referring uh, uh, physicians get a little bit older and their patient population gets a little bit older. Uh, so all in all, you wind up going from sort of a, a trauma-based practice early in your career where you're getting a lot of patients from the emergency room and, and people with broken bones, et cetera, and trauma. And it gradually uh, becomes more of an arthritis type of practice um, oh. as you get a bit older and you're not taking as much call. So at this point, um, I'm doing a lot of uh, elbow work. Uh it's a tough joint to try to get a good outcome from. Uh, there's a lot of uh, complications uh, with elbow trauma that, uh, that we're uh, trying to navigate right now. So it's a it's a very uh, interesting joint to be uh, interested in at this stage in my career. So I, I uh, really enjoy that a lot. Uh, and then, um, you know, we still do a fair amount of um, elective microsurgery here. Most common procedure being uh, the free vascularized fibula graft, and sort of an unusual operation uh, where you know young people who uh, have a problem with uh, the uh, blood flow to their hip, um, they can get arthritis really prematurely uh, if if that continues. And um, one of my predecessors, Dr. Urbanic. Uh, designed a procedure where we would take the the small bone from the outside of the leg, the fibula, and um, you take that with its uh, artery in two veins, uh, dissect it free, uh, and um, take it and uh, put it up in the, you make a 
a hole in the femur where you can insert the fibula bone. And it kind of looks odd. It sticks out a little bit and you got the blood vessels coming out with the end of the fibula. Uh, and then you, you uh, use the uh, native uh, circulation uh, around the femur to sew those blood vessels together. And uh, you wind up getting blood flow back in the femoral head. And uh, that's a, uh, been a great uh, operation. One of my favorite operations uh, really is doing that procedure. Uh, and it's particularly rewarding in, in kids uh, where they come in and they're, they've got pain and they're limping and uh, you do that on them. And, you know, six months later, they're running around. It's a, it's a great, uh, great procedure for, for me to do. I remember when that first came out, mid-90s or so, and I thought it was just absolute genius, uh, hooking the plumbing up to the femoral head uh, to, yeah. to try to salvage it. So you got 25 years, basically, on that procedure. Uh, what do you think? Has it uh, lived up to all you hoped it would live up to? No, it really hadn't uh, as much as, you know, I, I think our, our hope was that we would be able to salvage everything. And when we looked back at our... Um, patients, uh, it's hard to get really, really long-term follow-up on them because uh, they, they were, at that time, they were coming from literally all over the world. Uh, now, uh, when we followed them up uh, at about a- average of about 13-year follow-up, um, only about uh, 75% of them were still going strong. So it's not a, uh, it's not a 100% um, procedure uh, by any stretch. And we're, we're definitely refining the indications of doing it to, to really limiting it um, to, to folks who are really pretty young. Simu- you know, simultaneously, the, the total hip arthroplasties have really uh, improved so much. Um, and, uh, you know, the registries are showing that uh, younger patients uh, that used to really fail their total hips uh, are now doing pretty well with their total hips. So, Certainly, the indications for doing a total hip now are, are expanding, while the indications to do a, a free fibula graft are probably contracting. How long does that case take? I remember in the early days, somebody was telling me, uh, I mean, it just it seemed like a, an excruciatingly long case, but you talked about refining it. Uh, how long does it take to do one of those now? It's not bad. I, I, I'd say that we, we get started around, you know, if you we, we do it under a uh, general, but they, they put a block in before it and um, we'll, we'll cut skin at around um, 845 and we're done with the uh, closure by 1231 o'clock. Awesome, um, yeah, it's not too bad. Um, uh, we, I do it with uh, one of my partners uh, and um, one, one guy's working up the hip and one guy's working down at the fibula. We alternate. Um, and uh, of course, we have a bit, pretty well-trained crew with us. Uh, been doing it for a long time, so they kind of anticipate every step of it with us. Um, and we have a, a fellow with us uh, or two, so that helps it move along pretty well. You know, one thing I remember when I used to live in North Carolina, there was this um, amazing orthopedic human interest story. Uh, Rene Chavez, who lost his hand at age four. And 50 years later, he would be the first successful hand transplant in North Carolina. Uh, you were part of that. That was a big team. I know there was a lot of people that came together to make that case happen. Uh, uh, number one, how's he doing? And I'd love to hear how this whole thing came about. Well, it, it, that's a fascinating uh, 
story within a story is uh, the whole uh, interest in hand transplantation. There's really it's um, yeah they, they're referring to it as aloe tissue transplantation, and you know it includes really um, uh, the hand uh, and the other group that uh, are, we're working on it with is. Um, Abdominal walls uh, are one, and then uh, faces are another. People get very, very badly burned, uh, our candidates as well. And so I've only been involved with the hand uh, transplantation world. And um, that has been a, a mixed uh, mixed type of uh, uh, experience. Um, one of the big problems that you get into with doing a, a transplant is that you have to give the the patient something to keep them from rejecting the donated anatomy. And right. so the, the immunosuppression, as it's called, the immune suppression to the, to the uh, patient uh, can be uh, very uh, damaging to them. It can cause them uh, uh, renal failure. Uh, it can cause them to uh, succumb to infections, uh, et cetera. You know, we're, we're really working out the, the, kind of the implications of it. Um, in our institution, uh, we have a, a very well-known transplant surgeon named Linda Sandales, and she's um, uh, she's actually got a, a fairly large grant uh, to study uh, a newer drug that would uh, not have the same uh, implications that the previous immunosuppression is, uh, has been having. So as part of a drug trial, uh, you you have to evaluate uh, whether the patient's a candidate, and um, we felt that uh, um, he was a candidate, and he really did uh, want to proceed with it. Um, and uh, so he uh, passed all of the. You know, we we do an immense amount of testing, both from an immunologic perspective to to make sure that the patient's going to not reject the organ, but also um, we have to assess whether they're willing to go through the therapy that's involved and et cetera. He did. And, um, and he's very pleased with it. Uh, and he uses it, uh, every day. So wow, seems like it's, uh, it's been good. Um, the ones that we've done, you know, uh, in a, in a new, uh, light, you know, the ones that we've done recently, um, have been bilaterals and that one is really pretty easy to, understand that um implication you know i've i had one uh, gentleman who had lost both uh upper extremities and um he uh, described just the the how difficult he had also uh, lost both lower extremities as well and he described uh, just the difficulties of day-to-day -day life uh right. and uh, and uh, how it can be very depressing and um so getting uh getting a hand is is like getting a new life uh, for for a lot of these uh, sure. uh, people, and so it's been that, from that perspective, I found it just to be one of the most rewarding things I've been a part of. But it is a big team effort. I can tell you, bilaterals uh, they they take a while to do. Um, you know, the the team probably was in the OR for about twenty hours uh, on the last one. I can hook up jumper cables to my car, but I'm trying to envision hooking up a nerve. How, how do you do that? It's a little bit like. If you imagine uh, uh, one of those uh, cables that goes to your TV um, and you got uh, the outer uh, black cable and then inside it you have the individual wires, 
it's a little bit like that, only the wires aren't color-coded. Uh, so it makes it a little bit harder to uh, figure out which wire should go to which wire. And so you look for patterns of wires. So you look for, like, there's a clump of wires. It looks like it's about eight wires over here on this side. And there's a clump of wires. It looks like it's about eight wires on that side. And so you try to get those clumps uh, to, to uh, come together. Uh, they're pretty fragile. It's pretty fragile tissue. So you don't want to pull too tight on it. You don't want your suture to leave a bad uh, imprint on the, on the nerve. So we use nerve, we use sutures for this stuff that literally you, you can't see with, without a, a microscope. So the sutures are smaller than your eyelashes. Um, so it can be um, a little bit tedious. Uh, again, some of this stuff is just uh, it's not hard work. It's, uh, takes, it's time consuming and a little bit tedious. I, I know you've seen your share of reimplanted fingers and anybody that watches any TV, uh, there's always somebody racing to pack it in ice, uh, <laughs> and uh, try to get it reattached. Uh, is that what you're supposed to do? Number one. And number two, uh, how long can that finger, that digit stay out, uh, before reattachment just, becomes a, a non-starter anymore that's a good question you know um in in general terms um uh we we try to avoid putting it directly on in contact with ice so we kind of wrap them up um in some gauze and a little bit of uh, saline uh solution and then uh put that in a bag and then we put that bag in a little bit of a, um, a cold slurry uh kind of ice water so that the you know in the old days you'd put it directly on a block of ice and it would come in, you know, half frozen and, and wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be viable because of uh, frostbite. So oh. I kind of want to avoid making it too cold, but just keeping it nice and cold is probably what we're hoping for. And then that's a, a really good question is how long can it stay uh, off before it's uh, no longer viable? And a lot of that has to do with the type uh, the tissue that you're putting back on. So, if you think about it, the requirements of your fingertip uh, needing blood flow and oxygen, there's not a lot of cells there that really need uh, to uh, survive. So that one might stay uh, viable for uh, 10 hours, give or take, you know. And then, um, uh, but if you're looking at somebody's hand where there's a lot of muscle in the hand and that muscle has a high oxygen requirement to stay viable otherwise it's going to die and so for those major limb replants we we like to put those on by about six hours get blood flow reestablished. okay you know we're talking about replants let's talk about implants just for a second uh i saw a great ortho summit exchange uh between dr yao and dr stern regarding silicone arthroplasty rubber knuckles and as I recall, Dr. Yao was in the pro saying, I'm not changing with Dr. Stern taking the stance. And I love this. He said, have you not learned anything at this point? <laughs> uh, where do you stand on these, um, these silicone implants? I have to preface it by, you know, you would, you would ideally never be in a position where you're debating Peter Stern. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I, I sympathize with my colleague, uh, Jeff Yao, but, um, uh, you know, be that as it may, uh, I think that, uh, 
in the in certain joints, uh, silicone got a really bad rap uh, because it was subjected to high uh, loads. And silicone has a tendency to fragment into smaller pieces, and then those pieces incite a big uh, foreign body reaction in the body uh, and in the joint in particular. So you looked at it in the in the wrist, it got a terrible uh, reputation to some degree in the elbow as well, although to a lesser extent. And so for a while, silicone was was heralded as uh, the ideal uh, implant. And then, like many things, um, it went in a, a cycle where it was to be uh, no longer used. And um, now we're kind of in the middle with it. Uh, we, we love it in smaller joints uh, because it's relatively forgiving. Uh, meaning all even if it breaks, uh, it still functions as a spacer between the ends of the bone so that the right. bones don't rub together and, and hurt. Um, but then when you start p- applying more of a load to to failure on it um, and it starts to your your digit or uh, extremity starts to move in the wrong direction, then it's um, it's it's not really acceptable. So. For the PIP, it's probably pretty good, and uh, for the MCP, it's acceptable, uh, certainly. And um, then for, uh, for example, in the wrist, um, even in the base of the thumb, probably not something that you're going to use. Uh, certainly, probably it's never going to probably go back to its popularity uh, in the elbow either. So, I think it's it's got a role, but um, we're you know, in orthopedics, I'm sure you would agree that we have yet to find the holy grail, which is uh, a perfect replacement for cartilage. Yeah. And um, uh, we, we, we've been searching and searching for different uh, metals. But um, really, if you think about it, uh, metal is never going to be a replacement for uh, the cartilage bone interface. And um, we're going to have to do better with our search for a different implant and Certainly, the FDA is going to have to loosen up its hold a little bit and uh, allow us to go with that, or or we're never going to get anywhere. I was reading an article about CMC arthritis and PRP, and I was just curious. Uh, biologics are are everywhere right now. Do, do you have any thoughts on on that particular uh, marriage, so to speak? You know, I I don't really think that that's a reasonable consideration to be honest with you by the time that you know i've got arthritis in my knees and i'm getting it in my thumbs um but you know by the time that if you were to take an x-ray of uh, the average person that i operate on for cmc arthritis the thumb is already uh, out of it's already the cat's already out of the bag so to speak the thumb is um halfway in the joint halfway out of the joint the part that's in the joint is rubbed all its cartilage off and his bone rubbing on bone. There's really nothing that you're going to be able to do in that scenario. The ligaments are already contracted and the thumb is not going to go back up into the socket. And I don't see how injecting anything is going to do anything much more than be um, somewhat palliative. So we do, we do cortisone injections. Uh, Some people have looked at hyaluronic acid, uh, but really these are, those are kind of, uh, band-aids overall and you you know occasionally you'll get the patient that just gets incredibly stiff and when they get so stiff that the bone's not rubbing against bone then they stop hurting and I understand that concept but I don't think PRP is really going to change that one way or the other. Sure. 
I remember early in my career hearing about a, a fabric device that people were using as an interpositional in those. And yeah. I, I know there's soft tissue in, interpositionals. I, I think there was a pyrocarbon implant yep. released a year ago or so. Uh, what's the state of the art on that these days for you? Well, I, I think that, you know, it's yet to be uh, determined what the state of the art is. I, I've, I've been I participated in a couple of different uh, designs for different um, implants there. And um, I think that the reality is if you look at that joint natural state uh, and somebody without arthritis, we call it a double saddle, uh, meaning it's uh, uh, it's two saddles lined up on each other. Uh, imagine if you would a Western saddle and a, a, on top of an Eastern saddle and you just had them sitting on top of each other, uh, they would come together and they would, um, they would move around uh, and you, you would slide up in the, in the saddle and back in the saddle and it would, it would move. You know, that's a fairly difficult geometry to replicate if you're a company uh, and you're trying to make something uh, that's going to be, uh, it's going to fit Mrs. Jones at age uh, 76, and it's going to uh, fit her son at age uh, 50. Uh, there's a big disparity there, uh, and it's pretty hard to imagine that a company is going to be able to provide enough specificity there. Right. Uh, so I think that you know you're going to maybe see uh, that uh, as we get better and better with 3D printing, uh, you're going to maybe see that uh, these devices could be um, actually uh, 3d printed for you, uh, and, and particularly out of a different, uh, particular, uh, polymer, um, you know, that might be the way to go, uh, in the future, uh, to really kind of make it patient specific right now. I think more and more people are kind of just still taking out the trapezium and, um, and using some type of suspension to hold the thumb in place long enough so it heals uh, at the appropriate length. Patients have done so well with that operation over the last 50 years that um, we're going to have to really come up with a better uh, uh, treatment uh, uh, for people to move, for doctors to move away from treating their patients with that. Dr. Rich, I was talking with a mutual friend the other day, and he was pondering his own eventual carpal tunnel release. Uh, where are we on endoscopic versus open, limited open? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I, I know where I sit with it. Um, having fixed a, enough uh, problems from it, uh, I probably would am still a, a limited open kind of guy. Um, you know, when we first started looking at this, uh, one of my former uh, bosses was involved in a big trial. Uh, and um, the comparison of the endoscopic to the open uh, was... Um, a very uh, small incision at the wrist uh, versus a five-inch incision that went from the mid-palm down across the wrist crease and into the forearm. And that was the comparison groups that were used. And of course, a small incision is going to be better than a five-inch incision. I mean, I, I, I get that. But uh, as we started looking at the data a little bit more closely, we found that it, the differences in patients really diminished uh, over time by about three months. There wasn't much difference in the groups. Hmm. Uh, we found that um, we could accomplish the goal of the carpal tunnel release 
with a with a one inch incision um, instead of that five inch incision. And so, you know, inch, inch and a half incision and you can put in retractors and you can see exactly what you're doing. And um, that became kind of the, the rebound effect of endoscopic and the complications of it. Uh, then people moved into this small uh, limited incision group. And now you're seeing uh, younger surgeons coming out and building a practice again on, on the use of the uh, endoscopic technique. So I, I don't know, you know, things in orthopedics have a tendency to move in, in waves, uh, as you're no doubt aware. And so we're seeing a resurgence of the popularity in endoscopics going up. I don't know that it's really totally data-driven uh, as much as it's proponent-driven. There are definitely proponents to, of it that are, that are going to publish large series of patients, none of which had a complication. And then you get somebody who does a meta-analysis of all the papers that are published, and then it somehow looks like it's objective, uh, prospective randomized, when it's really just uh, large groups of patients that are, are collected. So I guess you can, tend, you can tell my feeling would be that uh, if I had to have it done and I was looking at the, you know, the function of my hand, I probably would have a limited incision and uh, suffer with it for an additional four weeks and, and know that I was not going to lose, uh, lose function. If I had a dollar for every orthopedic presentation that started with a slide that said back to the future, yeah, um, yeah. Bringing, these, yeah. bringing these procedures back, I'd be a, I'd be a wealthy man. Uh, there's that curve that uh, people talk about. I, I can't remember the, the guy who named it, but basically it's uh, the operation goes through a period of discovery, a period of intense um, uh, popularity, and then um, the complications are noted at about two years into the procedure, and then it goes into a tailspin. Uh, and drops off in its uh, use. Whatever that logarithmic curve is, I can't remember what it's referred to. But right. the longer I've been in practice, the more uh, the more that comes up in my life. You just see, you see people rediscovering the wheel over and over and over again. Right. I know people in glass houses don't throw rocks, but do you think that industry has something to do with that, where we come up with a shiny new thing that's going to fix all those issues we were having with a procedure before? I, I don't know whether it's so much industry as, as it is. Um, wisdom comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. Uh, and um, I think that uh, we, uh, in orthopedics, we rarely uh, go into things with a judicial uh, prospective randomized trial approach the way that uh, our medical colleagues are forced to do with the advent of a new technology or a new drug. And um, we are we are kind of immune to that. So we kind of rush in uh, with a new device and we see wh whether it works. Um, and sometimes it's uh, beneficial and sometimes uh, we wind up with the same complication. Well, doctor, I could not have a conversation with you without asking about lateral epicondylitis. It has been uh, the bane of my existence for much <laughs> of my life. I finally got it resolved after way too many cortisone shots. Don't even ask me how many I got by just pie crusting the bone, believe it or not, just jamming a needle in that thing and making it bleed. Fin yeah. Finally got it to heal. Um, where are we on that uh, these days? I know that's a very common malady. And what are you doing these days with that? Well, you know, I, I love that topic and I, I don't want to pontificate too long on it, but it's a fascinating thing that we understand so little of the cellular aspect of the, this um, and still 10% of the population is going to get it. Um, 
And as you no doubt have experienced, it's it's tremendously painful and very frustrating to wait uh, eight or 10 months to try to get something like this to heal up. You know, your experience is, is kind of where we're, we're moving with this uh, overall. And um, if you were to look at, this, at the cells in that um, area of what we call tendinosis, it's not really an itis because there's no real inflammatory cells in there. We think it's inflammation, but it, there's no inflammatory cells there. Uh, it's just a bunch of cells that have died and, um, are, uh, and the cells around it are not making any effort at all to repair uh, the process, not making any effort. We call it the resting phase of a cell or G0, and they're not doing any uh, anything to try to repair the tendon. So we know that that happens. And then what we're then trying to do is uh, stimulate some sort of a healing response. And uh, the guy who first um, really made a uh, uh, a living off of treating tennis elbow was a London surgeon uh, whose name was Mills. He used to give the patient ether when they were anesthetized and he would take their uh, forearm and he would flex the wrist way down and also pull, pull the thumb down. And I'll bet you, you did that exercise a million times. Yeah. And um, it's referred to as a Mills maneuver. And uh, Mills would stop when he heard a loud pop and of course, what he was doing at the time was he was rupturing that tendon. And once the tendon ruptured, then all of a sudden, the alarms went off, and the uh, and the fire trucks came, and of course, the all the cells come in and they repair the tendon, and um, they're and patients are happy. We really haven't gotten any farther than Mills really at this point in our in our lives. We we've gone to shaving it with an arthroscope from the inside out. We've um, We've cut out the bone, uh, we've cut out the ligament, we've cut out the tendon. In the last uh, issue of Campbell's Operative Orthopedics, the last edition, there were something like 40 different operations uh, described for tennis elbow. Wow. And uh, what is it they say? If, if there are more than two operations described, then everybody's wrong. Uh, so uh, really, I think the, the fact is we don't know what's, uh, what we are doing with this, and Stimulating a healing response uh, has been our goal. The PRP that you mentioned earlier uh, has been studied and uh, initially had some uh, promise, uh, but um, really hasn't hasn't really shown uh, dramatically uh, improved results with uh, comparative randomized trials. But uh, you know, dry needling uh, may be a significant uh, impact on it. But we're basically getting some type of inflammatory response and a healing response established there. The other thing that's interesting is the effect of cortisone. And in several of the studies that we did, we found that uh, corticosteroid was a a bad prognosticating factor. So we're kind of moving away from cortisone shots. Uh, They kind of make you feel good at first, but then makes it probably a little bit less likely that you're going to ultimately heal. And of course, the number of cortisone shots that you get is going to be uh, a bad prognosticating factor, as, as you've no doubt experienced as well. So um it's it's an interesting topic that I, I i do think that uh you got lucky with the uh, with getting better with the dry needling that's awesome yeah i was just thinking as you were talking i know there's people in the audience that rep these bone marrow aspirate concentrate devices and they they seem to be a, a solution in search of a problem all the all the way around uh, a lot of people use yeah. them in spine and uh, I wonder if anybody's ever fooled around with that of a, in a combination of the dry needling and throw a little yep. bone marrow aspirate in there. It's everything but the kitchen sink, right? <laughs> right. Uh, it's a very interesting topic, and it's sort of um, – it goes back to kind of 
where I think new directions are going to be going in orthopedics. I think one of them is going to be, um, you know, we've studied arthritis uh, and the cellular and genomic basis for arthritis. And we're studying that uh, with these large uh, NIH uh, funded studies and um, uh, really looking hard at um, uh, the factors associated with developing arthritis. And what we really haven't done is taken the same uh, degree of scrutiny to look at these uh, conditions like rotator cuff disease and uh, lateral epicondylitis and Achilles tendonitis and so forth. Um, but I think it's a it's uh, an area that's uh, waiting for exploration uh, and understanding the cellular uh, level of gene expression and how these things are developed. You know, I did not know this, doctor, until I was getting prepared to talk to you, but uh, that distal radius fractures are the most common orthopedic injury. You used to see a lot of X fix for these, not so much anymore. Uh, is there any role for dorsal plates anymore or volar plates kind of kicked everybody else to the curb? Well, I think, you know, it's a, uh, an interesting topic. I, th I think that, um, you know, I've studied this for my whole career and I've, I've been interested in it from the time that we were doing X fixes to then fixing them arthroscopically and with X fix and pins and then uh, dorsal plate and then volar plate and then locked volar plate and then a spanning plate across the back and combined bowler and dorsal and combined bowler and X fix. And we've done them all, all ways uh, over the last uh, 25 years. And um, I think what we're starting to get a sense for is just um, understanding which fractures uh, have to be approached uh, from which uh, direction and um, avoiding the, the pitfalls uh, that go with making the wrong interpretation. And if you look at pure numbers, so to speak, you probably are going to say that um, about uh, between 80 and 90 percent, depending upon your practice, uh, of these fractures are going to be amenable to a, a volar locked plate. And um, since those are pretty well tolerated and in our recent series looking at complications, they're, they're, they exist, but they're fairly low. Um, so I think that, that, that definitely for the average orthopedic surgeon or the average uh, company, uh, you're going to put, if 80 or 90% of a common fracture can be treated with a volar plate, you're going to be sure that you have a volar plate in your uh, armamentarium to, to uh, deliver. Having said that, you know, we, we still do a fair number of uh, spanning plates uh, at Duke. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I've got one on for tomorrow. Uh, so we do a, fa a fair number of those uh, spanning plates from the hand down to the uh, radius um, and uh, with a little bit of bone graft. Uh, and that seems to be a fairly useful thing for these really highly, highly comminuted uh, injuries uh, that probably are not amenable to, to a standard bowler plate. I remember watching a presentation by a well-known knee surgeon about how to do a bad total knee. And it was just things to watch out for uh, to, oh, make, yeah. to make sure that you don't end up in your partner's office with a complication. Uh, I'm sure you've seen your share of things coming uh, through Duke there. Uh, is is there a way to do a bad volar plate? And, and what are the things that a surgeon should look out for to, to make sure they don't do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the key to a volar plate is uh, remembering this uh, piece of the 
radius uh, referred to as the critical corner or the it's uh, where the lunate rests on the radius on the palmar aspect there. And that serves uh, as a um, when that piece is depressed, then uh, the uh, lunate bone is going to follow that piece no matter where it goes. If it goes uh, if it goes away from the radius, uh, your entire carpal bones are going to follow it no matter what. And so if that piece isn't stabilized, if it's not fixed uh, to the rest of the radius and the, and the hand, then the hand is, in essence really does uh, sublux uh, off of the disc radius. And that's a really challenging problem to, to bounce back from. And uh, we've we published on our results with osteotomy for that, but really the idea is just to avoid it uh, if you can. Uh, and that's probably the most Im- single most important thing that I could impart on our trainees when when we fix a radius is just remember and respect that critical corner. Any thoughts on doing the distal part of the plate first and then lowering it to get your tilt? Yeah, I I I I, I love that. Uh, I typically will um, put in multiple uh, wires. I think the the hard thing about doing that particular technique is uh, you don't necessarily want to burn your bridges with uh, putting your screws in first. Uh, So what I'll typically do would be to put in uh, multiple wires in um, the distal fragment. And then you got to really make sure that the distal part of your plate is right smack down on the, on the, uh, the radius if you're going to do that because um, the wires obviously don't don't compress the plate to the bone so you have to then turn around and clamp that the plate right up to the distal uh, margin of your radius but if you do that and then you just take a serrated clamp and and clamp the plate to the shaft at that point you'll usually get your reduction uh, without a whole lot of effort and um uh, if I have trouble with that particular technique, then usually the patient's got kind of a little bit uh, worse uh, bone quality or it's a little bit older fracture. And um, at that point, I change directions and I haven't burned any bridges because I because I just put in the wires. I didn't put in my screws. Good tips. Uh, scaphoid fractures. I got to ask you one question about that. See my share of Herbert Whipple screws and various other uh, implants put in for that. One or two? Oh, yeah, you've been doing your homework, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we, we published our uh, our results on using two screws for our non-unions. And the idea is, you know, if you do a, if you look at these articular fractures, um, you know, they're really rotationally unstable, right? I mean, the femoral uh, neck fracture, for example, uh, a subcapital uh, fracture, the femoral head's really... Um, uh, going to rotate on a single point of fixation. That's why we put in multiple screws there. Um, and so similarly with the scaphoid, it's it's subject to rotating on a single point of fixation on union. So um, two screws, you know, negates that rotational um, uh, moment. And so it works for non-unions. Then we decided to apply it for, for, um, acute fractures and definitely gotten a lot of uh, traction. Um, a lot of people are taking to using two screws with it. And I, I think it's, I think it's probably going to be the way that most people treat them these days. 
Well, Dr. Roosh, I just wanted to close up shop by asking you, is anything going on at Duke uh, that's, that you're excited about? Any uh, projects going on that you want the world to hear? Uh, I know you've done some artificial ligament work. Uh, any Anything else going on? Well, you know, there's. Uh, I think that the, the wonderful thing about uh, being around young, uh, bright uh, scientists is to be able to sort of participate in what they're discovering. And I think that you're really looking at a, a group that is uh, now studying proteins and how proteins uh, are actually regulated uh, by your genes, uh, by what your mom and dad gave you, and um, and how the proteins that are expressed by those genes are going to be the reason that you wind up developing osteoarthritis or avascular necrosis or maybe even um, the uh, development of tennis elbow. Uh, so, uh, you know, understanding these really basic level um, cellular uh, mechanics, I think it, that's where all of us are, are really focusing our attention uh, moving forward. Uh, and I think we're going to come up with some really interesting stuff uh, that we can start to uh, manage uh, medically. And, um, you know, ultimately, maybe even make uh, uh, some of what we treat uh, a lot easier or at least delay the uh, delay the treatment of it. Uh, imagine if we could delay the development of uh, uh, osteoarthritis, uh, you know, another 20 years. Think about what that would mean to your your perceived lifespan, how you feel about, your, you know, your activity level at age uh, 70 or 80. Uh, that would be pretty, pretty impactful giving you 20 more years of, of being young. So I think that's where we're going to be going. And, uh, and Duke has really uh, just got uh, voted number two in NIH funding. Uh, so we're really uh, leading this, uh, this front. And I think you're going to see some exciting stuff moving forward. You're heading up the number one hand program in the United States, 218 publication citations. So we haven't even scratched the surface of everything you've put out there. Just an amazing body of work. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show just to share a little snippet of your life with us and, and tell us what's going on. Uh, great work. Uh, it, it really is. A, it's an honor to be asked, but it's really even more enjoyable. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. You're really good at this, and uh, I, uh, I appreciate you asking me on. I never cease to be humbled by some of the people we get to hear from on Device Nation, and <laughs> today was no exception. Dr. David Roosh, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your life with us. Duke is one of only about 10 hospitals in the United States that have pulled off a hand transplant, and getting to speak to the gentleman kind of at ground zero on that, what an honor. And I remain equally humbled by the people in the listening audience. You are truly the best of the best, and I am so thankful to have you along. So as we go into this week, I wish you all great success. May all your POs come in on time and be on alert for those doorbells. <laughs> They're right around the corner, and trust me, there's nobody at the door. It's just the TV. Continue to listen and watch. You just may hear something that changes everything. Device Nation. Device Nation.